Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Now my hairi mai. I'm John McDonald, kia ora, and welcome into the Hut Zone on Thursday the 31st of March. The Hut Zone is Wellington Access Radio's weekly look into the stories, history, people, poems and music that make the Hutt Valley community. Tonight we go time travelling in two local history series. We hear the next episode in our 1997 series from the Historical Society of Eastbourne with Bob Birch. And we start a new 2001 series from Upper Hutt Library's archives, talking with Coral Whiteman. This week's poem is from Eastbourne's Emmanuel E. Garcia, called For the Shape of a Song. And the story is from Catherine Mansfield, called Taking the Veil, which is a melodramatic wee tale. And there is plenty of local music tonight from Bruce Atkin, ex Valley High School, in Gratis Kinetics, Taken All, Miles Calder and the Rumours Bring Cold Wind, and The Black Seeds Bring Bring the Sun. Let's start the show with a poetry reading from Eastbourne's Emmanuel E. Garcia. For the shape of a song, you were unsteady on the cobblestones. It was raining softly in the dark like music as I held you on the narrow streets. The shops were closed, the few passers-by reproached. Were we so obviously lost, we hardly touching to ablaze with stillness? For those with surer steps, there had to be another end, I thought as the rain moistened our lips and we'd licked each other's wounds for the shape of a song. And that was for the shape of a song from Eastbourne writer Emmanuel E. Garcia. Okay, staying in the Eastern Bays, here's more in the 1997 series for the centenary of Muratai School, where Bob Birch talked to Daphne Logan on his early memories of Eastbourne. house is a substantial house, in fact a very beautiful house, that place you would spend your childhood in. Were the many houses as substantial as that? Because along Arua Street, along the Marine Parade there, there are a lot of small cottages still. Yes, well, we, we have uh, in the family some photographs and uh, I could tell you a bit about the, the house if, if it's interesting. Well, I think it's very interesting. It was built by people by the name of Holworthy, who were middle-aged or older people when they married. And uh, some relatives of mine have done some research into a family in the hut called the Fitzherberts, yeah. who were uh, after Fitzherbert Street and yes. Park are all named after them. Mrs. Holworthy apparently was a Fitzherbert daughter, and she'd previously been married, I think, to a, a Lord Buckley. Oh. So she was Lady Buckley before she became Mrs. Holworthy, and they built this house, obviously a reasonably wealthy people, and uh, only lived in it, I think, for maybe even less than a year before one of them died, and then the other one died only a matter of a few months later. So this this new house had been built for for the bride, and um, they didn't have the pleasure of living in it for very long, and they didn't have any family, 
that we understand that they bequeathed the house to their doctor. And he didn't want to live in it, so put tenants in it, released it out on a long-term lease. Yes. And, um, and then I think he died, and his estate put the property up for sale, which is when my father bought it. And But he didn't get possession until the lease expired. No. So that, that's a bit about the house. But the, the other interesting thing is that it was designed by Frederick de Jersey Clare, who was a very well-known architect in Wellington in that period. Uh, but he designed very few residential buildings. He, his specialty was brick churches. Uh, I think the monastery in Oriental Bay, yes. St Luke's in Wagetown, most of the brick churches around Wellington and the hut were designed by him, and that was his, where he made his reputation. But the, the house at Eastbourne was uh, was one one uh, domestic, one-off. yes, a, and a one-off. So that was um, quite interesting. I think he lived in Days Bay. He may have done. Yes, yes. I think I met him. Yes, yeah. well, the Clares are a well-known family uh, in Days Bay, Larry Bay, and and the yes, city. Indeed, I think they were all related one way or another. Sure. There was a law a law firm who were Mr. Clare was my father's lawyer. Was he? In those business days. But it was a lovely a lovely home to grow up in. I'm sure it, it, was. It, it, it was a, a rambly sort of place. It had been added on to, so they must have lived in it for a while because they had added on at the back what we came to call a playroom, a playroom that I think was originally designed as a, as a, a dining room mm-hmm. uh, with access from the kitchen across an open back veranda, strangely enough. Ah. We went out the kitchen door and into the dining room door. Yes. Um, but uh, when we were growing up, we used it as our children's playroom. But the house had a big veranda on the front. And I think all of us children, as we grew up, took our turns at sleeping on the veranda. I remember I slept out there with my sister June. And then yes. when, I, when I was promoted to a bedroom, when my older sister married. So we, we progressed through yes, the bedroom. Yes, I, I understand. Status. So the veranda was used as the extra sleeping space? Yes, and in, in the strong northerly, the windows used to leak. And, uh, <laughs> and many was the time you had to sort of get up and move, move the mattress away from the leaks in the window. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. It does face the sea and the northerly. What comes to mind particularly when you think of growing up there? Were you involved with sport? Yes. Um, sort of growing up takes such a long period of time. Perhaps I could go back a stage, and because an event did happen very early in my life, which influenced, I guess, my activities. In, I was born in 1923, and in the summer of 1925-26, there was a very serious polio epidemic in Wellington, or in New Zealand, mm-hmm. sorry. Um, and my eldest sister, Betty, contracted polio only a few weeks before Christmas, and she died. Uh, just before Christmas, Uh, and my parents were spending most of their time at the hospital while she was, before she died, Uh, but when the story, as Mum tells it, is that she came home one night, and I was by this time 15 months, and I was in a cot, and she noticed that when I was moving in the cot, standing up, I seemed to be dragging one foot behind me as I moved around the cot. And she called the doctor and said something wrong with, with Bobby, as they used to be called him. Mm-hmm. And um, he examined me and said, oh yes, well he's got polio too. Um, but don't worry, he's already over the worst of it. Good lord. Uh, so I, I was taken to hospital with polio, uh, which I contracted in my right foot. And this left me with a, a slightly withered leg and a twist, like a club foot in a way. So this affected my mobility mm. to some extent, but mm. I still used to run around barefoot and it didn't interfere with my growing up too much. But when I was 11, instead of 5, I think I, um, the doctors tried to, or thought they might be able to correct the twist in my foot by uh, operating on it and cutting the tendons, and I was in plaster for, I think, three months. And as I, I, don't, I remember being in plaster, and this is when I first started collecting stamps, which has been a ah. lifelong interest. Um, yes. And as Mum said, when the foot came out of plaster, it was beautifully straight, but within 24 hours it was all twisted again. So the operation was, was not really successful. No. So the way I generally put it is I played all sports, and I enjoyed it. 
but I didn't I didn't excel at anything. I, I, uh, I think my, the sport I probably excelled at most when I was at college was uh, gymnastics, which mm-hmm. of course you're mostly doing that with your arms and shoulders. And exactly. So, uh, but I played rugby, played cricket, played tennis, fives. It's wonderful. The ballroom you... dancing and. You didn't let so, it, You didn't let this no, difficulty hold but, you back. But, but going back to the polio, um, there were three families in Eastbourne who lost children. Were there? Yes, there, there was um, uh, Carter, I think, I think his name might have been Billy Carter, and there was um, a girl, Cord, oh, yes. who, um, and uh, those three families all lost children. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how many other children may have contracted the disease like I did, but survived. But I think for the size of Eastbourne, there was a fairly high mortality rate. And yes, it was. Uh, it must have brought home to the population the severity of it, and, and really today's Indeed. children just don't realise how lucky they, they are to have the, yep. have the vaccine. Yes, absolutely. Mm. I remember that your mother's sister lived with you. When did she come to live in the family? Well, she... she I don't really know what was wrong with her. It was Millie, my aunt, but she was what was described as a mental defective, I think. She was just a little simple, uh, very gentle person, yes. and she lived with her mother, with my grandmother, Mum grew up, she was born in Nairn Street in Wellington, where, by pure coincidence, my father was also born. That's in Newtown, isn't in, it? In, uh, no, it's in, uh, on the way to Brooklyn. The top, oh. of Willis, top of Willis Street right. carries straight up sure. to Nairn Street. Sure. So they were both born there, but uh, Mum uh, moved with her family to Kaiwara when she mm-hmm. was five. Mm-hmm. And so they, uh, they lived at Kaiwara in a big old house that uh, used to be on the point above the Hutt Road, just on the south side of Onslow Road, and it's where there's now um, a house with a, with, looks like an observatory, a bubble, a bubble top concrete yes. building up on the yes. point there, so that's where the, the old house that was. That was the point. Mm. So well, I grew up there, but um, my parents did, uh, sorry, my grandparents did buy a cottage in Eastbourne, which they used as their holiday cottage, so they used to go over there weekends. Mm-hmm. And my father, in turn, had been a batch boy at Eastbourne. He, before they were married, he used to go over to Eastbourne weekends, and as a lot of young men did in those days, and they became became known as the batch boys, and I think there was probably quite a lot of rivalry, uh, probably the equivalent of today's, of today's gangs, that no doubt they got up to a lot of mischief in, in their way. I guess that's where he met mum. But my parents, my grandparents, Subsequently, went to live at Eastbourne. They added on for the cottage. And so well, where did they live? They lived just in Rutter Street. They had about three doors from really? where my parents bought. On the same side. On the same side, yes. yes. Dad had a, had a they had a, a treble section. I think there were two sections on the waterfront, right. and then there was a section running behind the houses in Rutter Street, which was Dad's garden. He had a very big garden. That was really the passion of his life. I've often wondered whether it was to get away from all the women. <laughs> but he used to spend his, all his spare time in the garden. I'm John McDonald, and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, and that was the late Bob Birch talking of his memories in 1997 to Daphne Logan, formerly of Days Bay. A big thank you to the Historical Society of Eastbourne for letting us play that interview. Part 3 airs next week. OK, time for some music. From Miles Calder and the Rumours, who have their roots in Eastbourne as well, here's Cold Wind. Divergent long before we set sail. There's a cold wind. 
That was Miles Calder and The Rumours and Some Cold Wind. Staying in Eastbourne a little longer, let's hear a short story from Catherine Mansfield's 1922 book, The Dove's Nest and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Taking the Veil by Catherine Mansfield Read by the Story Girl It seemed impossible that anyone should be unhappy on such a beautiful morning. Nobody was, decided Edna, except herself. The windows were flung wide in the houses, from within there came the sound of pianos. Little hands chased after each other and ran away from each other, practicing scales. The trees fluttered in the sunny gardens, all bright with spring flowers. Street boys whistled. A little dog barked. People passed by, walking so lightly, so swiftly. They looked as though they wanted to break into a run. Now she actually saw in the distance a parasol, peach-colored, the first parasol of the year. Perhaps even Edna did not look quite as unhappy as she felt. It was not easy to look tragic at eighteen. When you are extremely pretty, with the cheeks and lips and shining eyes of perfect health, above all, when you are wearing a French blue frock and your new spring hat trimmed with cornflowers, True, she carried under her arm a book bound in horrid black leather. Perhaps the book provided a gloomy note, but only by accident. It was the ordinary library binding. For Edna had made going to the library an excuse for getting out of the house to think, to realize what had happened, to decide somehow what was to be done now. An awful thing had happened— Quite suddenly, at the theatre last night, when she and Jimmy were seated side by side in the dress circle, without a moment's warning, in fact, she had just finished a chocolate almond and passed the box to him again, she had fallen in love with an actor. But, fallen in love, the feeling was unlike anything she had ever imagined before. It wasn't in the least pleasant— it was hardly thrilling, unless you can call the most dreadful sensation of hopeless misery, despair, agony, and wretchedness thrilling. 
combined with the certainty that if that actor met her on the pavement after, while Jimmy was fetching their cab, she would follow him to the ends of the earth, at a nod, at a sign, without giving another thought to Jimmy or her father and mother or her happy home and countless friends again. The play had begun fairly cheerfully. That was at the chocolate almond stage. Then the hero had gone blind. Terrible moment. Edna had cried so much she had to borrow Jimmy's folded, smooth-feeling handkerchief as well. Not that crying mattered. Whole rows were in tears. Even the men blew their noses with a loud trumpeting noise and tried to peer at the program instead of looking at the stage. Jimmy, most mercifully dry-eyed, for what would she have done without his handkerchief? squeezed her free hand and whispered, "'Cheer up, darling girl.' And it was then she had taken a last chocolate almond to please him and passed the box again. Then there had been that ghastly scene with the hero alone on the stage in a deserted room at twilight, with a band playing outside and the sound of cheering coming from the street. He had tried. Ah! <sighs> how painfully, how pitifully, to grope his way to the window. He had succeeded at last. There he stood, holding the curtain, while one beam of light, just one beam, shone full on his raised, sightless face, and the band faded away into the distance. It was, really, it was absolutely... Oh, the most... It was simply... In fact, from that moment, Edna knew that life could never be the same. She drew her hand away from Jimmy's, leaned back, and shut the chocolate box forever. This, at last, was love. Edna and Jimmy were engaged. She had had her hair up for a year and a half... They had been publicly engaged for a year, but they had known they were going to marry each other ever since they walked in the botanical gardens with their nurses and sat on the grass with a wine biscuit and a piece of barley sugar each for their tea. It was so much an accepted thing that Edna had worn a wonderfully good imitation of an engagement ring out of a cracker all the time she was at school, and up till now they had been devoted to each other. But now it was over. It was so completely over that Edna found it difficult to believe that Jimmy did not realize it too. She smiled wisely, sadly, as she turned into the gardens of the convent of the Sacred Heart and mounted the path that led through them to Hill Street. How much better to know it now than to wait until after they were married? Now it was possible that Jimmy would get over it, no, it was no use deceiving herself. He would never get over it. His life was wrecked, was ruined. That was inevitable. But he was young. Time, people said. Time might make a little, just a little difference. In forty years, when he was an old man, he might be able to think of her calmly, perhaps. But she... What did the future hold for her? Edna had reached the top of the path. There, under a new-leafed tree, hung with little bunches of white flowers, she sat down on a green bench and looked over the convent flower beds. In the one nearest to her, there grew tender stalks, with a border of blue, shell-like pansies, with at one corner a clump of creamy freesias, their light spears of green crisscrossed over the flowers. The convent pigeons were tumbling high in the air, and she could hear the voice of Sister Agnes, who was giving a singing lesson. Amen, sounded the deep tones of the nun, and Amen, they were echoed. If she did not marry Jimmy, of course she would marry nobody. The man she was in love with, the famous actor, 
Edna had far too much common sense not to realize that would never be. It was very odd. She didn't even want it to be. Her love was too intense for that. It had to be endured, silently. It had to torment her. It was, she supposed, simply that kind of love. But Edna, cried Jimmy, can you never change? Can I never hope again? Oh, what sorrow to have to say it, but it must be said. No, Jimmy, I will never change. Edna bowed her head, and a little flower fell on her lap, and the voice of Sister Agnes cried suddenly, Oh, no. And the echo came. Oh, no. At that moment, the future was revealed. Edna saw it all. She was astonished. It took her breath away at first. But after all, what could be more natural? She would go into a convent. Her father and mother do everything to dissuade her, in vain. As for Jimmy, his state of mind hardly bears thinking about. Why can't they understand? How can they add to her suffering like this? The world is cruel, terribly cruel. After a last scene when she gives away her jewelry and so on to her best friends, she, so calm, they, so broken-hearted, into a convent she goes. No, one moment. The very evening of her going is the actor's last evening at Port Willen. He receives by a strange messenger a box. It is full of white flowers. But there is no name, no card, nothing. Yes, under the roses, wrapped in a white handkerchief, Edna's last photograph with, written underneath, the world forgetting by the world forgot. Edna sat very still under the trees. She clasped the black book in her fingers as though it were her missile. She takes the name of Sister Angela. Snip, snip. All her lovely hair is cut off. Will she be allowed to send one curl to Jimmy? It is contrived somehow. And in a blue gown with a white headband, Sister Angela goes from the convent to the chapel, from the chapel to the convent, with something unearthly in her look, in her sorrowful eyes, and in the gentle smile with which they greet the little children who run to her. A saint, she hears it whispered as she paces the chill, wax-smelling corridors. A saint and visitors to the chapel are told of the nun, whose voice is heard above the other voices, of her youth, her beauty, of her tragic, tragic love. There is a man in this town whose life is ruined. A big bee, a golden furry fellow, crept into a freesia, and the delicate flower leaned over, swung, shook, and when the bee flew away... It fluttered still as though it were laughing. Happy, careless flower. Sister Angela looked at it and said, Now it is winter. One night, lying in her icy cell, she hears a cry. Some stray animal is out there in the garden. A kitten or a lamb or, well, whatever little animal might be there. Up rises the sleepless nun, all in white, Shivering, but fearless, she goes and brings it in. But the next morning, when the bell rings for matins, she is found tossing in high fever, in delirium, and she never recovers. In three days all is over. The service has been said in the chapel, and she is buried in the corner of the cemetery reserved for the nuns where there are plain little crosses of wood. Rest in peace, Sister Angela. Now it is evening. Two old people, leaning on each other, come slowly to the grave and kneel down, sobbing. Our daughter, 
our only daughter. Now there comes another. He is all in black. He comes slowly. But when he is there and lifts his black hat, Edna sees to her horror his hair is snow white. Jimmy, too late, too late. The tears are running down his face. He is crying now. Too late, too late. The wind shakes the leafless trees in the churchyard. He gives one awful, bitter cry. Edna's black book fell with a thud to the garden path. She jumped up, her heart beating. My darling, no, it's not too late. It's all been a mistake, a terrible dream. Oh, that white hair. How could she have done it? She has not done it. Oh, heavens. Oh, what happiness. She is free, young, and nobody knows her secret. Everything is still possible for her and Jimmy. The house they have planned may still be built. The little solemn boy with his hands behind his back, watching them plant the standard roses, may still be born. His baby sister. But when Edna got as far as his baby sister, she stretched out her arms as though the little love came flying through the air to her, and gazing at the garden, at the white sprays on the tree, at those darling pigeons blue against the blue, and the convent with its narrow windows. She realized that now, at last, for the first time in her life, she had never imagined any feeling like it before. She knew what it was to be in love. But in love... And that was Taking the Veil by Catherine Mansfield, read by Story Girl as part of LibriVox's audiobook recordings. Okay, time for some more music. Here's The Black Seeds and Bring the Sun.
I'm John McDonald, and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, and that was the Black Seeds and their 2022 song, Bring the Sun. In 2001, Upper Hutt Libraries did a series talking with long-time resident Coral Whiteman, and part one of that series starts tonight. This is part of the Upper Hutt Oral History Project. It's a recording of an interview with Mrs Coral Whiteman at her home in Hall Grove, Upper Hutt, on the 6th of June 2001. The interviewer is Nicola Freyan. So, Mrs Whiteman, thank you for agreeing oh. to be interviewed for the project. <laughs> oh, I'm only too thrilled to do it. Could I just ask you about your name? Yes, um, your Coral. name Coral. Where did that come from? Well, I think you think it's Scandinavian, because I was named after an aunt, and she was only twelve when I was born, and she told me she was the proudest aunt in Wanganui because she used to wheel me out and I've showed to her friends, and I've since heard it's got quite common now, but mostly Scandinavian people have had that name. Ah. Yes, now even in Upper Hutt, Mrs. Coral Kidd, she her she comes from a Scandinavian family, ah. and I wondered whether it was a Scandinavian name. And did you have a middle name as well? May. May. <laughs> Mother, <laughs> I was named after two aunts, Auntie Coral and Aunt Violet. Mother didn't like Violet the name. So she called me after Violet's second name, May. Uh, yeah. and, and what was your maiden name? Nelson. Nelson. N-E-L-S-O-N. My, my uh, father's father, my grandfather, was a Swede, could hardly speak English. Oh, really? Yes. It's 10 o'clock a.m. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, the clock just told us the time. It's um, fast, and you're right. <laughs> Your grandfather was Swedish. Swedish, yes. yes. And how did he come to New Zealand? Well, I don't know. There is history, but I haven't. Um, uh, someone else in the family uh, had the book that he came out and he owned a lot of land over in the Wire Wrapper farming. Oh, what was but, his name? Uh, the same as my father, Charles Frederick Nelson. Yes, my father was named the same. And um, he went to England and he met my grandmother and brought her out from England. That's my paternal, you know, grandparents. Mm. Um, And brought her out. And um, they had a family in Wanganui. But um, I don't know what happened, but... There was a big family, then they parted. The only thing I know is when, when the grandfather was dying in Auckland, he had cancer of the throat. My father went up to visit him. I always remember that. Mm. So what happened, why they parted, I don't know. Could I ask you about your place and date of birth? Oh, Wanganui East. Do you remember the address of where, no. where, where you were born? No. Were you born at home? I, I th- yes, at home, I believe, in those days. Yes. Mm. And what was your date of birth? 6th of February, 1907. And what was... Oh, you've told me your father's name, haven't you? Charles, Charles Frederick. So He's always known as Fred. How do you spell Frederick? F R E D. E R I C K, Frederick. Charles Frederick Nelson. Mm. And uh, do you know where he was born and when? Yes. Um, he was either born in Eltham or Opanaki, or, or my mother. They were both born, one was in Eltham and one Opanaki. And <laughs> I don't know which is which. I, I should have got out the marriage certificate. But, oh. uh, but they were both born in Taranaki, Eltham and Opanaki. And about when was your father born? 
Oh, he was 22 when he married. Right. And, and when was that? Let me see. Uh, how old am I? You're uh, 94. 94. <laughs> When, what, let's see if we can get to it another way. He died. Hmm? He died at about seventy-eight years old. Yes. Right? And, yes. And he died when? He died that. in the. I'm sure it was the Hutt Hospital. Wasn't Wellington. Mm. I think we worked it out. That it, he was born about eighteen eighty-five. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And mother was twenty-four when she married him, oh. so she was a bit older. Mm. She was about. 80, I think she died just before 84th birthday. And what was her full name? Well, I don't know whether it was Simpson or Paris. <laughs> <laughs> there was a bit of a mystery. Oh, well, what was her first name? Emily. Emily. Yeah. And then her, her maiden name was Ida She was Simpson. married under the name of Emily Simpson. But I have her, I'm sure her name was Emily Paris. Ah, P-E-R-R-I-S. Yes. And so her mother was... Was, um, was born in England and her father, and they married in London. I know someone who looked up the birth certificate. And they came out to New Zealand, and he jumped ship. They don't know, at those days, you had to if you want to stay and hide. And mm. I took, I think he took his wife's maiden name, went under the name of Simpson, but oh. his real name was John Paris. Ah. Yes. This is your mother's father. Father, yes. So he was John Simpson. John, yes, he was, uh, yes, he was really as, John as Paris, but <laughs> he went under the name of John Simpson. When Granny died, the coffin was in our aunt's house and a little cousin, Nosy, she looked on at the label on the, co the name on the coffin and rushed to tell us she was Susanna Paris, not Susanna Simpson, the oh. name on the coffin. So that's how we know. You talked about your father's name and so on. Can you tell me what he was doing? Hmm? Uh, what was his occupation? Well, he was a bushman. Mm. a bushman, right up the Ronganui River. He and his two brothers used to have big contracts felling bush. They'd be away from home for months at a time. In those days, of course, it was all bush. Do you remember his brothers' names? Yes, there was Harry and Oscar. Oscar <laughs> Nelson. And did they, did they work as a business together, the three of them? They used to take a contract for, for a, you know, for someone to fell so much bush, yes. Oh. They used to work together, yes. And how, how did your father come down to Upper Hutt? Well, um, he took a contract at Kaitoki to cut posts. My brother used to always complain because we never had a secondary education you say oh my my college was up on Goat Rock at Kaitoki and he was only 14 and he had to help wow. our father hard day, hard man of course expected the family to work hard mm. on a Sunday we used to pick blackberries when in the season and everyone had to pick a kerosene tin full. Mm. They weighed 60 pounds, I think. And, oh, the sand flies and the scratches were terrible. And we'd think we'd have our tins full. Father would come along and give them a good shake. And they'd only be half full and we'd have to start over again to fill them. And he never, ever gave us any money for them. He used to send them into the market in Wellington. And mm. that was Sundays. And your father met your mother here in Upper Hutt, did he? No, in, in, in um, well, as far as I know, see, mother kept everything to her chest. We did, we never knew anything. But as far as I know, they met in Wellington. 
because they lived in Wellington and they were married in Wellington. Right. And what was your mother doing in Wellington? Well, I under from my father's people in later life told us she was working in a hotel as a housemaid. Oh. And a uh, hotel? No, no, don't know, because it was a big surprise to us. And they said her mother, our other grandmother, was in Wellington with her. And it's the first we ever knew. We only found that out after Mother died. And um, the other side of the family told us. And that was Nicola Freon talking with the late Coral Whiteman in 2001. A big thank you to Upper Hutt Library and the Whiteman family for letting us play that interview. Part 2 plays next week. But sadly that means it's the end of this week's show. A big thank you to all our guests today and a big thank you to you for listening to the show and supporting Wellington Access Radio. If you have a local hut story, musician or poetry suggestion then please make contact, we'd love to hear from you. Facebook message me or email the team and our email is thehutzone at outlook.co.nz Now you can listen again to the show as a podcast on the Hutzone pages of accessradio.org.nz or check out my Facebook page for links to some of the individual interviews and stories and my Facebook name is John McDonald NZ. Join me next Thursday in the Hutzone show. Until then, keep safe and let's go out with some local music. Featuring ex-Hutfield High School's Bruce Atkin. Now Bruce is releasing his latest album on the 1st of April and you can find that on Bandcamp. It's for his new band Automatic Static and his presence on the Bandcamp site is D. Bruce Atkin, or one word. But tonight we're going to hear a 1971 release of his from his band Gratis Kinetic and here they are with Taken All. Hairi Ra.
That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.